Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Greetings, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined for the first time this season by Parker Kligerman, who is in the Charlotte area, here to do NASCAR American Motormouths, but also here to be on the NASCAR NBC podcast to talk a little Darlington Raceway and Formula One Miami. Parker, yeah, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I always love coming on this podcast. We've done this in all sorts of different places. We've done it here. We did it one time. I feel like we'd ri- we did it on the hotel one time, <laughs> yeah. lobby or something. That's right. We did so, the lobby of the Carnegie yes. on a Bristol weekend. Yeah. When we were talking iRacing three and years ago. And we talked ago. Formula One that time, too. We did. And yeah. I think the last time we talked Formula One, when you were on the podcast, was it was maybe right after Baku mm-hmm. last year. One of the crazy races they had during the 2021 season. And it was yeah. very fortuitous timing. And again, how felicitous that you were here <laughs> right after the inaugural Miami Grand Prix. But we're going to get to that later because, of course... Got to start with the finish at Darlington Raceway. Another, we were just talking about it before we got started here. Another great race for the next-gen car. Yes, uh, there have been one or two clunkers put aside. Uh, Martinsville, uh, I think the stat was something like 9 out of 12 races now for the next-gen car. The final lead change has come in the final 10 laps. And in the case of Darlington Raceway, it came with a lap to go. Very controversial. Certainly a memorable finish with Joey Logano knocking William Byron <laughs> aside. It was maybe a little more violent than it needed to be uh, in, in some people's minds. Uh, so Joey Logano takes out William Byron, who wasn't happy about it. Byron says about Logano. And William Byron leading right there at the end. And we just heard from Joey, and it sounded almost like it was a retaliation thing. Did you guys have something happen before that? No, I mean, we were really close off of two, and I think it spooked him and got him tight, and he was right against the wall, and I got the lead, and he's just an idiot. I mean, he, he does this stuff all the time. I've, I've seen it um, with other guys, and I mean, he drove in there 10 mile an hour too fast, and with these next-gen cars, you know, he slammed me so hard, it knocked the whole right side off the car, and no way to make the corner, so um, yeah, he's just a moron. He, he can't win a race, um, so he does it that way, so I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, it was close racing on the restart. We were faster than him. Obviously, at the end, right rear started to go away, and um, yeah, he didn't even make it a contest. So it certainly seemed as if Logano did have enough of a run entering that corner leading the final lap, but the Team Penske driver later clarified that he felt it was his right to knock Byron aside because Logano felt he had been squeezed into the wall on the final restart. Logano said that... You know, I, I probably wouldn't have gone straight to the bump and run if it wasn't for how he got the lead. Um, you know, he, he came off a of turn two and drove me right into the wall. Uh, at that point, um, I'm lucky my car's not broken, and I'm a very angry driver. And I think anyone in the field would probably agree if someone's going to be willing to do that to you, well, the gloves are off at that point. And uh, I knew if I got back there what I was going to do and, and what I had to do. And so, uh, you know, that's... That was the way he wanted to race. So I said, let's go. Um, you know, if he passed me clean, it wouldn't have looked like that. Right, we're equal. That, we're equal, man. It, you, you put me in the wall first. It's Like I said, it's game on. At, at that point in my eyes, it's equal. So, Parker. Hell of a recap. Yeah, that's my recap. Sorry <laughs> it took us two minutes to get to your opinions here on the NASCAR NBC podcast. But lots of emotions here. Lots of perspectives on whether it was right or wrong on Logano's part. I know Kyle Petty is going to be on here on Motormouth tonight with some opinions that are certainly going to interest some people. But you have a younger driver's perspective. What's great is you've raced against William Byron. You've raced against Joey Logano uh, as recently as, as a couple of seasons ago. So you know the way they approach racing. You know their ethos. Your take on whether what happened with Joey Logano and William Byron was fair. I think it's fair. 
uh, all is fair in love and war, but I think the it's a continuation of a precedent that's been set for the last couple of years, right? Since we've gone to this win and you're in, this whole justification of, hey, you can do whatever it takes to win a race, right? And this mano y mano, like if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back 10 times harder sort of thing. You know, calling it a bump and run is probably aggressive. It was more like a center punch and run. Um, <laughs> that, that knock was massive into turn three. But I think it's sort of, you know, so many different things have led to this moment where you have a car with this composite body that allows this kind of hitting you have you know the precedent being said of this is how people race this these days and i think me as a race car driver if i'm in william byron's position i'm very disappointed right i want to be race i want to race that out if i'm in joe logano's position because of everything we've seen the last couple years i have no problem doing that like that is the way that is how this works now like, that is modern-day NASCAR racing. That is what it means to be a modern-day stock car racer. It is you get in position to win. You've chased the guy down from being a second back. If you don't win that race because you raced him, no one will be happy with you afterwards, right? Like, any of the people that matter, your owner, your sponsors, that doesn't matter anymore. Like, you just have to win. That is what it takes these days. And I think that, you know, we see that with younger drivers, right now who are put in such a pressure cooker over the last couple of years that if you don't win, win quickly, or if you give up a chance to win, that could be the, the move that takes you from having a career in this sport at all, right? And we see that in the lower series where, you know, I, I've said this in the truck series as of late in the last couple of years, it's gotten so bad at the short tracks because it's hit and hope they don't get back to me. Like, that's <laughs> how you race. And literally, I mean, that's how it goes. And like at Martinsville last year, I ended up dumping Johnny Sauter because he you know, that happened to me like three times in that race before that, that point. And I just lost it because this is what these, you know, the kids are seeing the top level do this. The top level is trickling down mm -hmm. and it's going to filter through the whole sport. And that's what we're seeing right now. So is it different than what we saw 10, 20 years ago? I mean, almost 20 years ago at this point, when we watched that awesome Darlington finish between Kurt Busch and Ricky Craven where they were hitting each other and they run into each other. But maybe was it more good natured? I don't know. They, they tried to race it out. That was, was side by side. Yeah. What we saw other. with... Yeah with Joe Logano was just a center punch and get out of my way, right? right? So as a driver in William Byron's position, I'm very disappointed. As in Joe Logano's position, I would have probably, I mean, I'm not that sort of a driver, but I probably would think at a cup level, knowing the anger that could be produced when someone sort of you view has squeezed you or wronged you, I could see myself doing that. As a fan, though, here's where I, I see a entirely different sort of view, which is me sitting on a couch watching that race, Hell yeah, bring it on. I love it. <laughs> Why not? Like, what, what? it's entertaining, right? I mean, right. the only thing that would have been more entertaining is if he just waited to the last lap in the last corner to do it. Then it would have just been even more entertaining. But as a fan, <laughs> you know, if I'm putting in three hours to watch this whole thing and I'm waiting for a payoff at the end and the two dr this driver is a second back and ends up running the other one down and then the last, if it was the last corner, you know, it was two to go. If it was the last corner, the last lap, like knocks him out of the way, puts him a wall and wins the race. I'm like, hell yeah, that was awesome. Cool. And, and as a NASCAR marketer, and yes. Well, right. and... If, you know, the other side of that is, where else are you going to get that in modern day right, top level right. motorsport? You're not. That doesn't. That exists in one place and one place only, and that is NASCAR Cup Series racing. It does not happen in Formula One. It is not going to happen in IndyCar. You can't do it in either of those. Yeah, you might see cars. it in sports car yeah. GT racing, but you know that's obviously there's a little different amount of people watching between that and NASCAR. So I just think that is unique to NASCAR. This trend, this this precedent that's been set of allowing this aggressive driving and that sort of move. Until for whatever reason it's reprimanded, which I don't think it should be, or you know the drivers take it in their own hands to start talking to each other, or you know the way you race each other in those late stages could change. I think it's here to stay. So you said that it filters down from the top level to the grassroots. Yeah. So William Byron, 24 years old, Joey Logano going to turn I think 31 this He's month. He's my same age. Yeah, which is shocking. <laughs> it makes me yeah. so sad. Not to make you feel old, but <laughs> again, like three drivers that we're talking about, the two on the track and yourself, all were born 1990 or later. As you guys come up through the ranks, as say William Byron was was coming up through whatever Bandoleros Legends late models, was he learning that this is kind of the way things are done? Is it, has it already filtered down to that level a few years back where everybody yeah. is sort of expected the race this way now when they get to cup? I think so. I think it really started when you had the win and you're in design of the playoffs, right? Okay. And the, the second you create that level of value to a win, a single win at any point in the regular season, the incentive structure is there to make, you know, to take massive moves, aggressive moves that even if it's the same mentality as a short track and trucks, 
hit and hope they don't get back to me. Hit this person, win the race, and hope that doesn't affect me later in the year or running for a championship because my chances are it won't. You know, my chances of it going better for me are probably a lot larger than it not going well for me because there's only one person that I've wronged in this. Meanwhile, I've got 38 others I race every week or 34 others, however many you want to look at it, that I just think it's, you know, you've been put in this position that you have to take those sorts of moves. And yes, it filters all the way through. I'm sure William Byron experienced it, you know, as he got to the Xfinity series and then obviously has been experiencing it in Cup since he's been there. And I'm glad you did bring up the center punching as you called it, of Byron by Lugano. I caught a lot of flack because I referred to this as a bump and run, like many of us did. On Twitter, Gary in particular, at Kid67Y, love you, Gary. We had a back and forth last night about what constitutes a bump and run. He and some others, I'm still getting tweets about it as we speak, feel that I didn't characterize this correctly. But when I watch this move, Parker, I see, I know that maybe the result and the outcome wasn't exactly the same, but I see... Bristol during the 1990s or Martinsville at any point in time. To me, the definition of a bump and run is you hit the guy from the rear, you cause him to get out of shape, slide up the track, and you run past him. And in this case, yes, it was violent enough that Byron scraped the wall. He was able to keep going. He ended up finishing not in the top five, not even in the top ten, so it didn't work out so well for him. But he did finish the race, and I still maintain 1999 August Bristol, the most famous bump and run in history resulted in the other guy crashing. So I understand that maybe we need new terminology for it, but the only difference to me was it's Darlington, and we don't really see this move. Have you ever seen a move like that at Darlington? It's it's for short tracks, right? You wouldn't have in the past because... You know, if you go to the Gen 4 car, you wouldn't have been able to hit a guy like this. One, because the car wouldn't have allowed you to get there. Two, if you hit them as hard as Logano did, you'd probably cave in your front nose. You wouldn't survive the last two laps. Great point. Uh, You know, and then... You would before you even got there, he would have gotten arrow loose, sort of thing, and you would have been able to slide under him. I, I think where this looks so egregiously different than what you're talking about in the '90s, in the early 2000s, and everything we've seen before before this is that with this car, with the massive brakes, the composite body, the amount of speed that he was able to roll to that rear bumper, and the force he was able to hit William Byron with, without affecting his car, that's the key. Like his car does not look like it just hit a car 10 mile an hour faster into a rear bumper. It just doesn't. So that is something entirely new for the NASCAR Cup Series that we have never seen before, right? Maybe the closest thing would have been the COT and it's like first iteration when it was a box and that sort of thing. But this is, uh, this is very unique. Plus, you have a car that possibly is more mechanically, you know, gripped up than anything we've ever had because of the tire it has, right? So, you know, people talked about at Martinsville, they couldn't move each other out of the way because you'd hit the guy as hard as you could, and because it had so much mechanical grip, you couldn't move the car out of the way. So that's I think, factors in as well where you are able to hit with such force that it did what it did. And so that sort of changes it. And, you know, do drivers now learn from this move and say, wow, okay, so now you can get hit at like 10 miles an hour from the guy behind this opens up a whole other can of worms. Does William Byron be prepared to nail the brake next time as hard as he possibly can when he gets that hit? And so it's a double bad hit for the guy behind hmm. or, you know, stop his car from sliding up. I mean, there's so many things this opens up because I think this is what I talked about beginning of this year and actually when this next-gen car was announced where it's like changing some of the fundamentals of what we believe to be stock car racing. I think this is one of those things that sort of opens up that area where it's – everything we knew in the past would either damage the car or you would have moved them arrow wise and that just is not the case with this car so maybe a massive brake check to negate a bump and run might work maybe (laughs) i don't know i haven't gotten to drive one yet so i've really wanted to uh i thought i was gonna get a chance to test some over the off season it just didn't work out but from everything i'm seeing i'm looking you know talking to other drivers that sort of thing i just get this impression you know there's still stuff and i think we see it every week like there's stuff we are, the sport is figuring out and that the drivers are figuring out as we go about racing it. And this might be one of those things that we start to unlock about how you race late in race and how you view bump and run versus a brake check versus a center punch. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to get to some of those other things as well about the car. But first, before we leave Logano, I just want to talk briefly. Remarkable turnaround for him and Team Penske, which at this very desk, this NASCAR American Motor Mouse desk that we sit at right now, we had left Team Penske for dead after <laughs> Dover. Uh, myself, Burton, Latart, we all kind of just trashed them on Motor Mouse last week. Like, where is this team? Where is Ford? What's the problem with Penske? Logano, even before he won the pole position for Darlington on Saturday, 
he even came in the media center and said he thought they were in bad shape. After his win on Sunday at Darlington, he said he wasn't sure where this came from, saying... Beats me. Uh, it's crazy to go from where we were last weekend in Dover, uh, where you know we were just off, right? Qualified mid twenties and really run mid twenties and getting wrecks and all that. So uh, then you come back <laughs> next weekend and fast off the truck, put it on the pin, lead a bunch of laps, win a stage, third another stage. I mean, it's a big day for us. So I, I don't know, but uh, you know, it just goes to show kind of what this next gen car is right now, where no one really has it quite figured out yet. So. Parker, your thoughts on that, the the whiplash improvement by Penske, and is it somewhat due to the fact that what you are just talking about? I mean, nobody's got this car completely figured out, so you can overnight go like that. Yeah, and there's a, you know, everyone's got the same parts and pieces, right? So it's just putting together the puzzle better than the other guys, and no one knows exactly what that puzzle, you know, should be, how it should be configured. So yeah, I yeah. think we're seeing this throughout the field. I think you're seeing it with the parity that we're seeing, where one week a JTD Doherty car is up in the top two. Next week, they're back, you know, nowhere to be seen. A Petty GMS cars are popping up. A Colleg car pops up here and there. Roush Fenway, Keselowski goes and wins a pole at Dover out of nowhere. Where the heck did that come from? When's the last time we saw one of those win a, you know, thing? So I think it's definitely, you know, everyone is working the same puzzle and trying to figure it out in real time, and it's constantly changing. So maybe it's more like uh, Sudoku or, or like Wordle, <laughs> right? Like it's a new Wordle every time yeah. you show up, right? So you got five tries to guess it, and that's one of the things that also so many teams and drivers are talking about. One, the limited practice is incredibly hard, right, especially for the smaller teams, that if you just show up not right, you're not right, and you're not going to fix it. It's just not going to happen. One, you can't even change enough stuff. Two, you know, it's just there's nothing you're going to figure out there. It's, it's how you built the car to arrive there. That's it. There's stuff teams are figuring out about the floors that apparently is going wild where there's huge amounts of gains being made left and right by some teams and some teams figuring it out and some teams learning about this later and then doing that thing and suddenly running way better the next weekend. Like downforce gains? Yeah, it's just stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, figuring out where to race on this thing. So huh. I think it, it goes back to... It's so new, you just don't know, and they're trying. Everyone's trying these different things that they believe are correct, and just sometimes you're going to hit it, and sometimes you aren't. I, I, I just find it hard to write off anyone, especially of a stature of Team Penske at this point in the season. What are we just over? What are we eleven races in? Twelve. Twelve races. races Twelve in. races yeah. in. I mean, we're st- half, about halfway through the regular season. I still think there's just so much opportunity, you know, for someone to hit it right. Even if they're sitting right now in 28th in points or 25th in points, there's nothing from everything you've seen in the first 12 races. There's nothing that tells me someone that's sitting 28th in points can't go up there and just win a pole and win a race right now. Somebody like, for example, Denny Hamlin, who already has one. I'm going to get to him in a minute, but first I want to talk a little bit more. Another facet of this car tying into the Logano-Byron battle is how fragile these cars seem to be. We heard Logano reference it in that soundbite post-race about how he was saying that he almost squeezed me in the wall, and if I touch the wall, yep. my day could be over. There's this stat floating around Twitter today. There were 23 cars running at the finish, and someone figured out that apparently that is the fewest for a track shorter than two and a half miles since... Bristol in August 1994, and I did look at the box score for Darlington. There were 10 the cars that were listed out because of accidents, two engine, uh, one brakes. So of the 13 cars, 10 because of, of some sort of damage or crash damage. And the best example to me, Parker, and we were talking about this earlier, was Kyle Busch comes up on this wounded Brad Keselowski car that had blown a tire, hit the wall, and... I watched it again before we came in here. The 18 of Kyle Busch, his left front made what I thought to be fairly light contact with the right rear of Keselowski, where you would think the old Gen 6, Gen 5, Gen 4, whatever, it wouldn't end your day. But this ends Kyle Busch's day. You can see, like, the wheel is straight right before contact, and then suddenly the wheel is its almost like 45 degrees to the left. Yeah. And I just I can't imagine that would have happened before. And I know that you brought up that toe links in particular are part of the problem here. I don't know if that was the problem here. I tried to get some information on this. wasn't all that successful. So wherever you want to start here, was that a toe link, do you think? And yeah, I yeah. think something up in the front suspension like that, most likely toe links because they're the, they're the weakest link, pardon the pun. You know, <laughs> designed that way, though, because I think you got to start with the design of this car. So this car was designed to change what we do in stock car racing forever, which was build our own cars and parts and pieces, and it costs a bajillion dollars, and we're just wasting money and lighting on fire trying to race in the same box. So it's like, okay, let's design a car far more spec, far more similar parts, but also we don't want to have a chassis for every type of track like we've had in the past. Let's have a chassis that can be quickly fixed, rerun, more you know, akin to a center section formula car sort of design with all these bolt-on parts. 
And to accomplish that and to make it more modern and everything, right, you've built a center section that's pretty hefty. And you've got hefty clips and such. But eventually there has to be some part of this thing that gives. So when it hits a wall, how can you fix it, right? Well, it's got to have parts that are sort of replaceable parts and then parts you consider to be like, can't replace that. That's got to be like center section stays true. And I think when you look at, you know, how they designed it, obviously that toe link is going to be the issue, right? So like that's what's controlling the where that tire is pointed or the steering arms, that sort of stuff that it's just, they, they have to be the weakest link because that's what's going to give. I think what's interesting is when I was watching V8 Supercars uh, over in Australia for many years, like I started watching it back in the early 2000s, love that series, used to download it off torrents and they would have all these issues with their cars where they were going to these street courses and they would hit a wall and they would break a tow link and then that car would be done. And you saw it all the time. And they had composite bodies. So it was like a similar design, similar situation. And I wondered when we were going to this car, like, hey, you know, that's all fine, Danny, you have composite bodies and everything, but we also hit the walls pretty hard. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And we <laughs> door each other pretty yeah, hard. Yeah. And the old car was very much a big, solid piece, right? The rear end was one solid axle. It's just a big, solid car on the underpinnings. And I think this is just a different philosophy in that. So I think, yes, this adds, you know, this is adding to this issue. Will, you know, it will be interesting to see NASCAR, the teams, the parts providers, how they work together to look at evaluating this and saying, all right, do we want to make this more, these parts more beefy, but now they could hurt more expensive parts or, you know, maybe start to hurt this idea of this car being able to run races right after each other and be fixed really quickly? Or do we need to, you know, sort of keep them the same? Can we look at moving, you know, maybe the body different places? I don't know. I'm just spitting stuff out loud. But I think it'll be interesting to see what sort of path they decide to go down because the teams can't do this themselves. They have to do it with NASCAR. You know, NASCAR is to sort of direct where this goes and how this works. So we'll see. I just think it's a shame to see a stock car break something from hitting a wall. And yeah. I know before yeah. it was a problem because we had a body that would then lay on a tire and cut a tire. Right. Which is, but we that, don't want to see suspension funny. pieces yeah. break where you're out of the race. Like that is just, right. that is disappointing for once again, what we consider stock car racing. Can we fix some things? Maybe it's just the right side that can be beefed up or something. Can we do things that make it that it can be more durable for those types of hits and moves and that sort of thing? I mean, that is sort of the fly in the ointment is that when they talked about next gen car, to your point, the Gen 6, one of the big criticisms was if, if you cut the fenders at all, it's going to cut the tire. We, we yeah. saw this rash of cut tires. So we're going to make these things more tank-like. And we've seen races, I mean, Corey LaJoy finished fifth at Atlanta with a car that looked like it had been <laughs> through a literal war. Um, but yet, it seems like even though the composite body is so strong, it's these parts, it's the suspension pieces that are the weak link. It's so it's a work in progress. I think, you know, they, there's no race car in the world that is designed to hit stuff, by the way. <laughs> I just want to put that out Good there point. for everyone else listening. Now, yes, safety-wise, we're designed to hit stuff. But in terms of, like, engineering the idea, like, you could hit something and keep going. Very seldom is a race car ever designed in that way because it's just not the mythology of racing. Like, you build race cars to go fast, not wreck, especially racers, right? And so... This is a this would be have to be directed by something like a sanctioned body to find a way to make this car more durable or make those decisions because race teams will not make those decisions. They would just make the fastest race car and tell you not to hit anything. So, you know, do we want to make a race car that can hit stuff and keep going? I mean that's that's a tough thing and once again, what do we consider, you know, modern day stock car racing? Like, yeah. you know, it has to have contact. You got composite bodies for that reason. And I'm a big proponent of race series leaning into what makes them unique. And NASCAR has a very, very unique form of contact in racing that just you don't see replicating anywhere else. And you touched on it a little bit. What's different about the next gen is the way that it's being built now is that, and again, there were very good reasons for it, both competition and to your point, like cost savings. I'm talking to the man who wrote the column about teams burning money in wind tunnels, the whole idea. Hey, here. we got rid of them. Yeah, actually. we essentially like got rid of aerodynamics, made everything spec. But now teams, they can't just go and make parts that are more durable. They're at the mercy of these single source suppliers that supply yep. the entire garage and are at the direction of NASCAR, which then has to tell teams, okay, we're coming out with new parts that are all going to be produced by this one supplier this and, one you gotta company, go re-buy and you got to go buy them. Yeah, that's a problem. So yep. there's a lot of things there that make it difficult. <laughs> there is. It's no longer, you know, the way we used to go racing, which was 
we need a new right front spindle. Okay, build a new right front spindle. Or, you know, we need a new truck arm. We're going to build a new truck arm, right? Like, or we just go buy a new right rear spring or something. Like, it is now a large ship that is being steered by NASCAR that makes the decisions and where this thing is directed. And, you know, in working with the teams. But, you know, there's no quick, there's just no quick answers because it can't, right? You're going to have all these different opinions, looking at those different things, looking at the financial side of it. Okay, if we beef up these parts, how much more are they going to cost? How does that change the, you know, financial projections these teams had? Uh, you know, can these producers produce this new part? Can they get it designed in time? Can they test it? That's a, There's so much that's going to go into this. You know, it's, it's a work in progress and it's probably a long-term work in progress, right? So... It's just cool, though, that we're having the discussion of, like, how can we make this thing more durable and not, like, oh, my gosh, the racing sucks. Right. Yeah, like, right. we're screwed here. This is horrible to watch, and it breaks every five feet, right? Yeah, because clearly this car is very difficult to drive, and <laughs> that is a good thing for NASCAR and its Cup Series, and we saw it again at Darlington. This was the second race in a row where I think the racing was, was high quality. Dover was a good race. Darlington, the tire wear produced some great passing, and Parker, we saw two surprising spins, one involving a car that could certainly could have won the race, Ross Chastain, another Martin Truex Jr., both off of turn two. And I know you have some insight into this. Both occurred, I think, right after the restarts. Chastain's in particular, where he was down beneath, I can't remember who it was, Logano or Kyle maybe, and then hit yeah. him. He hits this this patch coming off a of turn two, and I know you have some insight on what happened there. Yeah, so last year, between May and the fall race, they repaved turn two with like a patch, I guess, which I had never, going back the last year, had no idea until I showed up there, really. And then, <laughs> or like days before, everyone's like, you hear about this patch? The patch? What's the patch? Well, they put a patch in turn two, and turn one and two is in incredibly fast corners. And the way you drive them is you turn off into turn one, depending on the amount of downforce in the car. So between a truck, Xfinity, and a cup car, you know, there's a bit of a lift, maybe a tap of brake. On new tires or in qualifying, it can be really high commitment back to the throttle. As you wear the tires, you start to back that up. But between turn one and turn two, there's sort of that center section where a lot of times you'll accelerate back the full throttle or get close. And then as you turn back off the wall for turn two, in the past, it was bumpy. It was the same surface. Now they have this patch. And the patch is gripped up. So, like, we went there last year. It was like, oh, drive it, drive it, drive it to the patch. Okay, I'm good. Like, slide, slide, slide to the patch. I'm good. And that was the same way this year. But two things. One, there's a big bump where the patch ends and goes to the old pavement on the exit. Mm -hmm. And the way that corner is designed or anything if you don't have the angle, you end up pinching off the exit, and that's where people you see get really loose in qualifying or by themselves. Well, when you're racing side-by-side, side, it's a corner that you really depend on the right rear side force, and even that next-gen car, even though it doesn't have a ton, you're depending on arrow through that corner. You have to be. So what we saw out of Ross was he came through there and was trying to pinch off the corner. Well, he got to the exit and said, uh-oh, I'm done this too much, I'm losing the rear end, he hit the bump of the rear, as you can basically see, is that, that big bump, and that just threw the car off, right? Martin Truex, similar thing, down on the bottom, doesn't have the arrow on the outside, has all that grip on entry, but as he gets to the center and realizes, I gotta pinch this off, there's no grip to do it, right? And that's just the design of that corner where it's a very tight, it's a corner that almost has like a decreasing radius in some respects, and you come in with so much speed and so much grip, but as you get to the exit portion, it's sort of an oh no, right? And I think that what we saw there sort of led eventually to what we saw out of William Byron and Joe Logano because the way that corner is designed and seeing those guys spin out underneath each other, like when I was in the truck, it happened to me a couple times, I tried to pass John Hunter Nemechek on new tires through there, and I couldn't get him because when he squeezed me, I'd just lose the rear end. So I, was, I almost spun twice on the inside of him. And you saw it throughout the weekend. It's just the way it's designed. So when, we, when William Byron does that last restart, he noted this, most likely, saw these how bad it is on the bottom through there, but got a good enough run to be beside Logano, and when he gets to that point where he was, most guys were pinching it off and then losing the rear, he just unwound, let it stick and let, unwound the wheel and let it slide up, and sure enough, ran into the, you know, Joe Logano a little bit, but that was like survival choice, right? It yeah. wasn't like a <laughs> intentional move. I think he maybe, as it went through it went oh that really worked out that, you know awesome i just got to run beat him off the corner great let's go you know yeah but is also a bit of survival in there of like watching the other guys and everyone else have those issues to that corner and thinking i don't want to spin as well right so i think just the design that corner the patch the amount of grip you have on entry and then the way that that corner sort of is designed oh and one other thing 
the way you were on the bottom, if the guy on top's really pinching you, you end up sort of on the apron where it de-wedges the car, where it sort of like picks, you know, forces more weight to the rear, and that can really unsettle the cars as well. So it's just a couple of factors that make it really hard to run side-by-side there. All right. Thank you for that. Very yeah. technical, but yet very insightful perspective. Uh, <laughs> I for don't know if that made any sense. It made a ton of sense for someone who doesn't drive race cars. <laughs> so last thing on Darlington, uh, maybe the only thing that didn't happen to Denny Hamlin at Darlington was he didn't spin out on that turn <laughs> two patch. He had another pit stop problem, although this wasn't the gun problem that cost him big time at Dover. He got caught in the Truex crash as well. And as Denny Hamlin got caught in that crash, he also watched both of his 2311 racing cars of Kurt Busch and Bubba Wallace also in that wreck. And so now, pending a penalty appeal, Denny Hamlin could also lose crew chief Chris Gabehart for four races because of that pit stop problem at Dover that caused the loose wheel. So Dustin Long of NBCSports.com had a chance to catch up with Gabehart after Darlington. And Gabehart said, I am something. convinced that we are the most dangerous wherever we are in points now. 22nd points place team in the history of the sport. I am convinced that we are the most venomous snake laying in the grass. Any week we can jump up and turn this thing on its ear. Like, we can win. We could have won last week. We go in this week. We'll go to Kansas and we could have won. I mean, like, so, you know, at Denny's, we're, we're all frustrated. I mean, gosh, it's hard. But, you know, I don't know what you do other than go race again next week. Again, the speed and the ability of everyone on the team is not lacking. So how do you take this forward um, without you around for the next three points races yeah. in Austin? Well, I'm not going to lie. It's tough. I mean, morale's, morale is important. And, you know, right now we're, like Denny says, waiting for the anvil to, to, to drop on our heads. That's just where we're at. But... You know, again, the, the speech is simple. The, the message is simple. We we have the ability to win every week from the the pit crew to the driver to the crew chief to the engineers to the mechanics, top to bottom. We we have the ability, and uh, this is no longer a point system. It's no longer a season that's defined by 36 races. It's not. It's defined by getting hot at the right times and dominating when it's time to dominate. And this team has the ability to do that. So, Parker, I know you've had the number 11 team before a lot when you've worked the pits for NASCAR and NBC. I know you know Denny well, you know Gabe Hart well. And they do have a win, so they're locked in the playoffs. And look at what Logano just did at Darlington. So, you know, maybe I've already made the case for what Gabe Hart's saying, but do you agree with Gabe Hart knowing how well you know him and Hamlin and the number 11 team? Do they kind of have that ability, do you think, that they can flip it and turn it on? I see no reason why not. And I think they could be one of the most dangerous teams in the whole sport because if I look at a team between driver and crew chief that if you take the variable of having to build the fastest car out of the equation, what I mean by that is your engineering team and all the things you've had to have in the past, and you simply say, I need a team, a driver and a crew chief, and a team who are going to execute at a really high level, and when they're on, they're going to be on, like really on. That's the 11 team to me. And I think Chris Gabehart is an incredible leader. I think he's a very analytical leader. We know that from talking to him, you know, spending so much time with him. He thinks about racing in a really, really calm but analytical, you know, way. And I like, but he also has that mix of being a racer, a guy who's raced, you know, his whole life has that idea of like still saying, but we're dangerous. You yeah, know, he's yeah. a super analytical guy, but he's also a racer at heart and just says, I, we know how to race, right? And I think you combine all those together with this car and you saw it at Richmond. Like they came out of, you know, some people say out of nowhere. Oh, and they won this race. That's just because that's who they are. That's how good they are. Like that, you know, it's always Denny Hamlin's year until it's not. So we got (laughs) to add that in. Like it's always Denny's year. It was this year he wins a championship. Of course it is. I've picked him to win a championship both of the last two years. I think I've picked him like five times. (laughs) So like he's always his year to win a championship. And, yeah, I just think I, I agree that statement knowing him, and I know that's hard for people out there listening to sort of understand because they don't know them that well as we do and have spent time. But I look at Denny as a clutch guy who, in a circle of chaos, can go out there and find incredible performance. And oftentimes is now admitted, and Gravehart told me this last year and then you know admitted this year that in chaos, sometimes he does better, which is yeah, just wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have Gabe Hart's incredible leader, a very analytical leader. 
who knows and understands his driver and understands what how to get the best performance out of him and how to give him a race car that he can go out there and drive. And so I think you combine all those together and you have a very dangerous team that's had some bad things happen, but I don't think they look at it as like that's their doing. If they do everything they do, they know how to do, they're in a position to go win a race every week they show up. Yeah, I agree. And if they can get this pit stop thing figured out, which uh, I had that on my list of things to talk about, but let's tell everybody just watch Motor Mouths or something or just <laughs> listen to Sirius XM NASCAR radio. I, I don't want to talk about loose wheels. <laughs> no, anymore. I'm so done with loose wheels. Yeah, let's go to warm and sunny Miami, which had Formula One in town at the Hard Rock Stadium for the first time ever. We have been texting a lot about this recently. If only we could share uh, the <laughs> contents of those text conversations. Probably be as entertaining or more so than this conversation, but I know you are plugged into the F1 world. Your general impressions, Parker, of how you think uh, the inaugural Miami Grand Prix went. It seemed like there was enormous buzz throughout. Exactly as I expected. As I said on the In the Wall, that piece that kind of went viral on TikTok and, and such, which I, I'm making a joke. It's not really <laughs> viral, but it did get a lot of view, most views I ever had on there. Or, you know, I, I thought that this event most, you know, undoubtedly would be a success, right? It's just I'm not a big fan of, of exclusive dev- designed events, right? I just I don't see the benefit in them. I don't personally, you know, want to be a part of something like that. I personally don't you know, care to go to things like that. Like, you know, Miami, I had Saturday and Sunday off. Could have been a chance to go see F1, which Formula 1 is my favorite racing. It's the racing that, it's the series that got me into motorsports. Now I've put my whole life into motorsports. So I think it's something that I feel very near and dear to my heart that I'd love to go see in person. But, you know, when I looked at how that event was being designed and some of knowing the clientele and having spent a lot of time with those types of people living in New York City and, you know, that sort of thing, I just said, like, this isn't for me as a racer. Like, this is not for me as a race fan. And that was very evident, right? You had a ton of celebrities. You had VIP sections, a fake marina, <laughs> success. There was Rolexes everywhere. Everyone was probably wearing Santel perfume. And I'm sure, you know, the you know the Instagrams look great and there was espresso <laughs> martinis left and right. But I'm sure on every metric is is a success. It's just for me being a racer, a motorsports guy, I want, you know, racing to me is a niche sport. It really is. And it's a big niche, but it's a niche sport. And, you know, Formula One might be one of the biggest of that niche, but it has a responsibility to all motorsports as with NASCAR and IndyCar and everyone to help grow this whole thing. Because I just think it's so funny that five years ago, motorsports was you know, in a position where we thought driverless cars were coming and going to stop this all, and there's electrification coming, and oh my gosh, is anyone going to be watching racing? And does anyone care about racing? And now they've had explosion because of this TV show, and you then build an event in a country that you so desperately wanted the attention of, and you close it off. It's like, yeah. what? Why? Why would yeah. you do that? Like, yeah. you had 400,000 people at Coda. Do it again. Do it three times. Bring as many people as you can because that's only going to last. You know, that exclusivity deal works in Monaco because it's been around and it has history and it, it can't build any more room. My whole thing with this event was you had a clean shape paper. You could do anything. I don't understand making exclusivity, faux exclusivity, but that's not my thing. Um, in terms of the racetrack, looked like a great racetrack. I think they did a great job with that. Uh, it sounds like the asphalt may have been, you know, a bit of an issue, but you know, I will give them huge credit on this. It sounds like they tried to do something cool with the asphalt where they were trying to make like more aggregate out of it. Try to create more tire wear. More tire wear or something? Hell yeah. That's awesome. Love them thinking out of the box like that. I think the event, you know, you know, the organizers of this event definitely had out of the box thinking, which I love in motorsports. Like I love the idea of saying, you know, just because it's been done this way doesn't mean we have to do it that way every time. But, you know, I just think the idea of that type of event like, it just doesn't do it for me. And sure enough, it had every celebrity you can name. And I'm sure a ton of people watched on TV and, you know, Instagram was all over the place. So they yeah. set the A-list record. I mean, there was no Definitely. question that the Q <laughs> scores were like off the charts for this event, maybe in the history of sports, not Which just is cool one. that motorsports, I mean, go back five years. I wish somehow we could account for like what the articles were like back then yeah. and Twitter yeah. and the sentiment of this sport. And now fast forward, and I don't think it's just Formula One. I think NASCAR has right. you know, is having a great resurgence. IndyCar is obviously doing great right now, having huge crowds, great TV audience. IMSA sports car racing has, you know, more manufacturers coming online in the next couple of years than I think I've ever seen. It's a great time in motorsports, which is so wild. It's so cool. It's great. I just think let's learn from everything that didn't work 30 years and 20 years ago, where we all viewed each other as competition, which we could get into that discussion of why the two biggest motorsports in the world were running at the exact same time on the other day, which is just infuriating. Yeah. But I think 
you know, there is there's such opportunity that Formula One having this attention, NASCAR having attention for motorsports as a whole to really benefit from this. And we just got to be smart and try to work together and, you know, design events that if you are someone who suddenly has an interest in motorsport, I want to make sure you get there and get to see it so we can lock you in for a long time. Would it make sense if this were to fall on the same weekend next year for maybe NASCAR to say, look, to your point, we, we probably shouldn't go head to head with the world's <laughs> biggest motorsport series, even though they are the kings in North America. Yeah. As we sit here on Monday afternoon, we don't know what the t TV ratings are like, but we saw what they were like last year when Austin F1 went up against Kansas NASCAR and Kansas NASCAR was still dominant. But like that's because I was in the race. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be uh, you know I don't right. I don't need to pat myself that's on the right. back. I did and one clearly, cup race last year up against Formula One, got the crowd. Clearly, so. you had an impact on that driver <laughs> reporter. Uh, but like when you have an when you have a chance to like run a race at Darlington and then maybe send Joey Logano. Like imagine if he'd done that bump and run. And yeah. Went and got to talk about it. What you were saying earlier, like F1 can't do that. If Joey Logano is like hanging around in the paddock in Miami and he's hanging out, like maybe he gets on the fringe of that photo with Lewis Hamilton, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Jeff Gordon, Mario Andretti, and like, hey, there's the guy who just won the cup race. Like it just it helps everybody, right? If if you can do something like that. A hundred percent. And I saw that I'll totally mess up his name, but the FIA president was meeting with Jim France at Daytona. Mm -hmm. He was doing a bit of a he tour. He met with Penske at Indy. Met with Penske at Indy. Yep. That was really cool to see because someone was asking me about, you know, Formula One and how if you were running NASCAR, IndyCar, like how would you interact with Formula One? I'd be, you know, and I'm sure they're doing this, but if I was in that position, I'd be reaching out to all those guys and especially, you know, Stefano Domenicali and saying, hey, let me buy you dinner. Let me come to you. Let's figure this out. Let's start chatting now get the open communication going to where we can all work together on this because, we are not competition. There's just not, you know, there's no way that for a person watching Formula One takes anything away from NASCAR, in my opinion, they can, and vice versa. They can only add to each other because if you like cars going in circles with right turns, I got a hell of a lot better chance of making you like cars going in circles with just left turns and occasionally right turns than I do someone who only watches football, right? Like, that's just a given. So I think we've noticed this in America, IndyCar and NASCAR working together. I know this is a hard one between F1 who maybe isn't incentivized to work with the others in this area. But I think, you know, there's got to be common grounds amongst these massive organizations in motorsports leading, you know, names in motorsports worldwide. The only thing bigger than NASCAR is F1 and they're really damn close to each other. So I think it's something where it might be hard. It might be difficult to find the incentive structure to make this happen. But yes, if we could find ways to make them work together, it would be the coolest thing ever. And I think NASCAR has definitely seen that what they've you know, been able to work with IndyCar, you know, I don't have the answer, but I think, you know, the, at least the attempt and finding, and maybe they are doing this right now of finding ways that we don't run the races at the exact same time would be helpful. Like, you know, and for Formula One, they might be like, well, we don't need your audience, right? Well, but wouldn't it be cool to have a million extra people watching your race if we can slow that over to you somehow? I'd help. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I just, I don't, I don't agree that thinking football and baseball are competitors because they offer an entirely different product. In a lot of ways, basketball competitors are trying to go after the same general sports fan. It's time on, you know, on sports talk radio and right. sports center and, you know, YouTubers and everything. In motorsports, we're under one genre. <laughs> so, like, yeah. if you go to NBCSports.com, it's slash NASCAR and motorsports, right? Yep. If you go to our buddy Jeff Gluck and the, the other company, it's motorsports. Yep. Like, anywhere yep. you go, it's motorsports. Yeah. You know, no one builds Formula One whatever in NASCAR or whatever, it's like, this is motorsports. If you cover that one, if you cover them all, you're under one banner. Obviously the other sports don't have that situation. So we got to work together. So that would certainly be one improvement I would make. The last thought I want to get your opinion on, like you said, they capped attendance at 80,000 or whatever and mm -hmm. made it extremely high end event. But I was a skeptic of this even working because the whole concept of it's 15 miles from South beach, but somehow they build the fake marina with, yep. with the yachts in the water. And I guess that worked. I guess that sort of delivered. But at the same time, there were some rumblings that there was unhappiness with this paddock club that they have that's high-end, high-dollar hospitality that it wasn't that well-run and sponsors and VIPs were unhappy. Does all of that sort of, is it outweighed by, you know, I know you were getting texted by people who don't normally watch racing and like, what's mm -hmm. happening? What am I seeing on my TV on a Sunday afternoon? Like, I, I guess on balance, do you think it all worked out? the way they intended i mean i don't know the particulars of that i mean you know that's the type of stuff where that's all built in their financial model of like you know those taking care of those vips and like what they spend there and then versus the idea of you know the cost of adding another thousand people 
for a lesser ticket, right? Yeah. And, you know, the cost of what it takes to run those VIP sections and that sort of thing. So I think they, they're they probably looking at all that. I mean, off of social media buzz, media, people texting us that don't watch racing, you know, watch this. Of course it was a win. But on the in, you know, inside particulars, for sure, I think I heard of something where they want to go to like 100,000 next year, which is great. I mean, they want to expand it and make it bigger. Awesome. Love that. You know, continually, I think there's probably room to do way more. I mean, it was built in a parking lot, but um, I don't know. I just, I think, you know, it will take a while to go and dissect this to know if it was a success. And of course, you know, all the metrics are probably, they'll probably have all the metrics saying it was a success. And maybe with having three races, one of them can be that way, right? Like that's a possibility with Vegas coming online and you have Austin and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think... It's a choice that those organizers and event makers have to make, and that's the choice they made. All right, so we'll end. I saved some of the best here for last. We'll end on Parker Kligerman Uh-oh. at Darlington. First stage win in your NASCAR career, and I think I broke some news to you right before we started. I believe this was a career-high point total for Parker Kligerman in a NASCAR <laughs> race uh, since the advent of stage racing in 2017. You finished. You won one stage. You finished third in the other stage. Career-high 50 points. Back-to-back top fives for you now in the truck series. And I know you still have no plans to expand with this team. Um, People should go watch In the Wall, your YouTube show on motorsports on NBC YouTube uh, to understand, like, the economics of that because you explained it in great detail and did a great job uh, about why that makes sense. But, you know, tell me about this run you're on. I mean, it's good, right? It's good for your career. Yeah, it dates all the way back to last year. I mean, maybe midway through the year we reeled off our first top five. We've just been on a streak. Chris Carrier does an incredible job. You know, the Hendersons, uh, who own the 75 truck, is a family that have just committed to giving us the resources to do this the right way, led by Charlie and Don Henderson, who are the owners of Food Country USA. And, you know, they've taken personal liability in that sense to make it happen, but they enjoy they enjoy this. They see how good a team we've been able to assemble. This team is so funny. Like, we definitely are part-time. You know, we may have one full-time employee with Chris Carrier, but our group of part-timers is a bunch of just hardened racers that show up with this mentality that we can win. And like on paper, you would look at our expenditure and our equipment and such and, you know, sort of how we do things. And it would tell you, no, this team can't win. But for whatever reason, you put enough, you know, good hard racers together and put their minds, you know, together and and with an, a mentality and an, an idea of like if we just execute, we can win. Um, and sure enough, we've been able to reel off some great performances. So it's been really cool to be on this run. I'm incredibly grateful uh, just to even have the chance to be here because two years ago, not many know this, January 2020, I get a text that my cup ride is gone when I was driving 96. Within literally, like, I think 24 hours, the 20, the 75 called me and told me they're shutting down, basically. So it was a heck of a week. Um, and, you know, I was 29 years old, and I was like, okay, I guess my driving career is done. Like, this is all over. And I just saw how quickly within – 24 hours it could all just crumble and leave and you know they ended up calling me a couple months later and saying okay we want to get back going and so when I got back going I just promised myself to be like hey man just enjoy this like this is so fragile there's no business being here I don't have a family that can support this I don't have a dedicated sponsor sponsoring me like this is very lucky that I get asked to come drive this race car and even get paid doing it you know since that point onwards we've just our performance has gone steadily up and we've been able to improve the equipment and now here we are in my opinion every week we've been on a super speedway we've been on a road course we've been on a dirt track and now 1.3 mile and every one of these we had a chance to win and so i'm just you know so grateful for the chance it's it's a lot of fun to be on this this ride when's the next race sonoma so we're going to skip charlotte we had it on our original schedule to go to charlotte but chris and i chatted and don everyone and we looked at sort of the timing between the two and this is sort of you know us making choices with our resources, you know, we could definitely go to Charlotte, but to have the best truck for Sonoma, it just, the timing doesn't work for us. So we'll skip the next, you know, couple and then we'll be at Sonoma, which I'd love to have the reps driving wise, but I understand for our team, you know, it makes the most sense to just focus ahead on a place we know we can go win, which would be awesome. Hey, wine country. That's yeah. Still pretty cool. Take Shannon. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. so hopefully the family will come out and we, we'll, uh, we'll do, you know, I think we'll end up doing 12 races, 13 races this year, which is okay. pretty cool. I got to do that Xfinity race, the 35, which was awesome for the first time in my career. I've actually been getting calls, which is cool inquiring about my services, which is nice. That's what I was wondering. I mean, you did that so, cup race at Kansas last year. Could we did see that, you in the cup car? That, yeah. uh, none from that world yet. 
But, okay. you know, one of the, the series that's been hardest for me to drive in probably in the last eight years has been Xfinity. Okay. And it's I've wanted to drive those cars really badly. It's just been almost impossible to get opportunities. For whatever reason, you know, I, I got this call from the 35 right before Coda, and I just said, yes, sure, let's do it. I didn't even ask any questions. I was like, yeah, whatever, let's go. <laughs> and I was like, I'm already there. Let's do it. It's a road course. How <laughs> bad can it be? And it was awesome. They they did a great job, Emerald Gase Motorsports. And... You know, we had a really solid day, and barring, you know, some breaks, a little better braking package, we probably could have finished in the top five that day. And for every reason, I think that just, you know, plus how well we're running in the truck, things, the tide changes at times, and you start to, you know, people start to take notice of what you're doing, and I've been able to actually get some increase, which is cool. That's very cool. And you've actually gained enough of a fan base that you now have it. Twitter follower who asks you a question <laughs> every day. Do you want me to he's ask the you the question? Guy. Yeah. Been, I, Do you know I, who this is? I no. don't know, but he's in our Discord. He's in. Okay. Uh, he's on Twitter. He's awesome. He wanted me to ask you if you're a '90s cartoon evil villain. Where would you be based? <laughs> I think that's kind of a weird question, though. Did '90s you, cartoon evil villain. I mean, what evil villain isn't based in a Silicon Valley in the last 30 years? So it had to be Silicon Valley. All right. Perfect. Yeah. And <laughs> Again, see Parker Kligerman, race in Sonoma right nearby. Parker, thanks for being here on the NASCAR NBC podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. I hope we uh, we dive deep into those topics and, and really un- unravel them for everyone. We dive very deep, <laughs> as we always do with you. Thanks again for being here. We appreciate Parker Kligerman again for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks to NASCAR NBC producers Emily Conboy and Aaron Feldstein for lining up Parker as our guest. A reminder that we also tape this podcast on camera ahead of NASCAR America Motormouths in our NBC Sports Charlotte studio. Motormouths airs Mondays and Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern on Peacock. And all the Motormouths episodes and clips are on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. You also can find lots more great content and highlights daily, as well as the on-camera version of this podcast, So make sure you visit and subscribe to the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. A quick plug for another NBC Sports podcast. NBC News and NBC Sports just launched a five-part podcast known as In Their Court. June marks 50 years since the passage of Title IX, and the In Their Court series will feature stories of women who fought for Title IX, advanced it, and are using their voices to pay it forward on and off the court. There are already two episodes released, and you can find In Their Court wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any NASCAR NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.